couple of quick things before I introduce Beth Buchenberger. Um, this coming next Sunday night, 5.30, is our Christmas cr program, Love Came Down. So I just wanted to encourage you, remind you, uh, there'll be tickets outside after the service on the, t and the table in the foyer. Make sure you grab your tickets and make sure you invite some people to come to this. It's going to be truly a time where we celebrate and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So remember, next Sunday, 5.30, Christmas program. Let's all be back here. One service, basically, one service. So we'll pack the place out if we have to. Set tons of chairs up. We have the cameras and things so you can see the screen from anywhere. Um, but it should be a wonderful, wonderful time next Sunday, 5.30. Got that? What time? Okay, very good. Um, before I introduce Beth, I want to uh, – Steve and Christy, you're, you're still here, right? Where are they? Where are they? Come on up if you're still here. I see you. Come on up. It's just you? Where's your lovely wife? She's out. She's out talking, isn't she? Yeah, she is. C catching up with everybody. Um, Steve and Christy uh, are uh, missionaries in Mexico, sent out through Grace Chapel, by Grace Chapel. This morning it was great because we had uh, different missionaries here. Is Todd around? Is he, is he, uh, he's out there? He's out there doing stuff. He didn't, it's all right. You don't embarrass him. All right, get up, Todd, wherever you are. Come here. We hardly ever get all you guys together, so uh, why don't we come up here? Just come on up. And uh, obviously, Todd Guckenberger, uh, Beth's husband is uh, co-director of Back-to-Back -back Ministries. Stephen Christian staff in Mexico. Um, we had Brent and Lisa here this morning who are um, our missionaries to India. So what a tremendous opportunity having everyone together. Is Corey here too? Where's Corey? Was she just supposed to? Is she here? Okay, Corey's not here. Um, but I uh, just wanted to, to uh, some of you haven't seen them before because you're new to the church in the last few months and everything, just so you see their faces. And I just want to give them a thanks, a, a round of applause and a thanks for all they do in ministry for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. See, I didn't make you say anything, come up or say anything, so you still love me. Um, another quick thing before I, uh, they sit down is, uh, you know, I know times are tough economically. I know that. I mean, it's hitting the church big time. Um, you know, giving is down. It's just the, the economy is really, really difficult right now. Across the board in all ministries, churches, ministries are all having a difficult time. Missionaries raise their own support. Todd and Beth raise their own support. Steve and Christy raise their own support. All the missionaries that we have locally and internationally raise their own support. And so I know it's difficult. I know it's economically difficult. But you can imagine they probably have people dropping out of their support because they're losing their jobs. And so if you would just pray about it, um, maybe after the service, uh, talk to them, find out what they're doing, build a, a relationship. You don't know who they are if you don't know them very well. Introduce yourself, build a relationship with them. And I really want to encourage you to think about giving above and beyond your normal giving, even if it's 20 or $25 a month or $10 a month, to support them. You know, they're, they're, they're sent out from our church, and I want to make sure that they continue to have the support that they need. So uh, pray for them, please. All their information is in the back, the wall back here. All our missionaries' information is back there. So grab that information, connect with them, pray about supporting them, um, because they're doing a tremendous job. Our lives, all of our lives, have been impacted by what they're doing around the world and what they're doing here locally uh, through the ministry of Back to Back. So um, let's make sure we remember them. Beth Guggenberger is going to be speaking this morning. Beth is um, 
Oh, the one thing I can say about Beth is she's one of the oldest friends that we have in Cincinnati. Deb and I uh, have known uh, Todd and Beth for almost 20 years now. Can you believe that? Wow, we're getting old. Um, I'm getting old. You're still very, very young. Uh, when I came here as a youth pastor to Cincinnati, Beth was a senior in high school. And she was one of the first houses that I went over. And when I was interviewing for the job, I went to her house and uh, got a chance to meet with her and talk to her. And um, it's, I think one of the most incredible things about staying in one place for a very long time in one city for a long time is that you get to see people grow in their relationship with Christ and see how God uses them in powerful ways. When Beth was 18 years old, 17, 18 years old, she was a leader. I mean, she loved the Lord with all of her heart. She led, um, she led uh, ministry in high school through Young Life. She was a part of that. Um, when she went on to college, she was a leader, and, and she was involved in ministry there. Uh, we were, when, when uh, we had opportunity to go to Mexico, this is 1996, um, obviously Todd and Beth were, being a, were part of our youth ministry, and we wanted them to be there because they were such an integral part. Beth led an impact Bible study. A lot of you involve impact group now, but that goes back a long ways. Beth led a group uh, in King's High School, and Todd, uh, it, it, with high school students, and she also led a, uh, a, a early morning uh, Bible, Bible study. Six o'clock in the morning, she got about 10 or 12 girls who were not Christians to come out at six o'clock in the morning to this Bible study. If that doesn't tell you something, like nothing else will. Um, but those girls were dedicated to that, and she was dedicated to them. One of the most amazing things to me was when, when we went on this mission trip, and Beth will tell you more about it, so I won't get into detail. We went on this mission trip, and when she got home, um, God really touched her heart. And it was amazing to me to watch them grow, both Todd and Beth, in their faith and decide they're going to step out in faith, and she'll describe it more in detail later, but step out in faith and move to Mexico. Um, and then to see what she's done and see what not just Todd and Beth have done, but the ministry, those people ministering in Mexico, what they've done is truly amazing. You know, the Bible says that God can do immeasurably more than all you can ever ask or imagine. Well, a long time ago when we started this whole thing, um, we were all sitting around imagining. We never imagined what God was going to do through Todd and Beth and through the ministry and the, the missionaries that we have there in Mexico and now around the world. We never, ever imagined that it would be what it is today. And we want to give God all the glory for that. But, you know, it takes people with a willingness to step out in faith and not be afraid to follow God's call in their lives. And Beth is one of those people who is not afraid. We're kindred spirits in that way. She is not afraid to step out and, and, and do what God has called her to do, even if other people think she's nuts. And sometimes a lot of people think you're nuts, but we love you. Um, one of the things I can say about her, she wrote a book in A Reckless Faith. It's an amazing book. If you haven't read it, please go out in the foyer and read it. She wants me to stop talking about her, so she comes up here like this. I'm not going to. Um, but she wrote a book, Reckless Faith, tremendous book. Make sure you read that. But more than anything else, um, I feel like, Deb and I feel like Todd and Beth are family. I mean, with, uh, without Todd and Beth uh, and Beth's call, uh, Josh would probably not be part of our lives uh, he is our, our five-year-old son. Uh, it means everything to us. And uh, maybe we're not blood relatives, but we feel close like, uh, like brothers and sisters with them. We love them so much. She's a good friend, and I'm sure you're going to love to hear her speak this morning, Beth Guggenberger. Amen. 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 Oh, our, our 
our story, the Guckenberger Greer back-to-back Grace Chapel story, started in the summer of 1996. I was thinking about um, just its humble beginnings. I've been fascinated with a verse this year, Zechariah 4.10, that says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. We had some pretty humble beginnings. Todd and I, um, when we moved to Mexico, we had lived the year before, double income, no kids, that sweet little time in life when you have a little bit more money than you actually need. And we saved one of our salaries, and when it was time to move to Mexico, we took that year's worth of salaries and traveler's checks because we were afraid that, um, that we were afraid that, um, I don't know, to cross the big bad Mexican border with a year's worth of cash in our pockets, I think. So we put them in traveler's checks, and we went to a local bank in Mexico, one of the first things we did because we needed to eat. And I can remember standing in, a, in this bank, there was like a big glass, um, th- big glass between the teller and myself. And I slipped some traveler's checks underneath the little divot there in the um, window. And the lady looked at me and she said, oh, tienes que formarte donde aquí. But I didn't know any Spanish. I had studied French for nine years. I, I remember thinking, where was the Lord in the seventh grade when I had to make those two choices? You know, I didn't know any Spanish <laughs> at all. And um, so I looked at her like, Kiki, I don't know what you're saying. And she looked back at me and she says, tienes que formarte aquí. And I was thinking, that sounds like Chinese, might as well. And so she got, like we do when people don't understand us, she got shorter and louder and slower. And she's like, firma tu nombre aquí. Meant nothing to me. Firma tu nombre aquí, nothing. So finally she gets really short. Tu nombre. Nothing. Nombre. And I repeat, because it was only one word at that point. I'm like, nombre? And she was like, oh my goodness, yes, nombre. But I still just stood there because I didn't know what I had just said. So she took a piece of paper, and she wrote the word nombre on a piece of paper and slid it under the divot. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, okay. So I signed all my checks, nombre, 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 <laughs> which I now know means name. <laughs> I signed our year's worth of salary away, name, 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 name. Oh, we had some very, very humble beginnings in those early years. But really, it all started this in a j- one July day, um, 1996. Todd and I were teachers at the time. We had graduated from Indiana University, moved here to Cincinnati. I was in the Sycamore Schools. He was at Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy, which means we had 90 consecutive days to not work in the summer, and Jeff had 90 consecutive ideas of ways we could spend those days. And uh, seven of them, we went in a row to the city, um, Queretaro, Mexico, at the bottom of the country every summer for several summers in a row. And in the summer of 1996, on the second to last day of our trip, Todd and I were painting a wall from blue to green, and I was pretty sure the year before we had painted it from green to blue, and I looked down the, the wall, it was like mid-morning and it felt like the end of the day, and I could see all these high school students we brought from Mason and Kings and Loveland and Sycamore, and I could tell they were feeling about as inspired about their missions trip as I was about mine, and he and I were still were kind of talking a little bit about it, about how we knew missions trips could look different than the way they were experiencing that week and we were reminiscing for a little bit about a trip we had taken a year or two beforehand to the country of Albania where um, we had gone just as an afterthought of somebody's for one hour one afternoon to an orphanage but it had stirred something in us and um, Todd looked at me as he was listening to me whine about the paint project and he's like you think there's any orphanages in this city and I didn't know, but I was looking for a good reason to put my paintbrush down. And so I was like, I don't know, but let's go find out. And then we went and asked Jeff. He was like, sure, go find out. I don't care. So he stayed with all the kids, and we jumped into a taxi cab. And again, I employed the same 
uh, method that my bank teller did, you know, real loud and real slow, I just started to say the word orphan with the Spanish accent because I didn't know any Spanish beyond Ola. So I was saying, orfano, orphanatorio, orphanajorio, orphanorio, orphan, you know, like anything I could get. And he didn't exactly um, catch on till about five minutes into the drive, and then he realized what we wanted. And he drove us to an orphanage, and then he drove away, because that's what taxi cabs do. They drop you off. And Todd and I looked at each other, and I'm like, oh, my heavens, I don't even remember the name of the street where that church was on where all the kids are, and I don't even know if we have enough pesos in our pocket to be able to get back. I don't even know what we're going to say to these people if they answer the door. We should have been kind of in the panic mode. But the truth is we felt this peace that passed all understanding kind of swirl around us. And as we were lingering in that peace, <laughs> I pushed Todd ahead of me and knocked on the door because he'd had like a year of high school Spanish. And I stood behind him like, okay, what now? And this guy answered the door, and through some creative forms of communication, we were able to explain to him, we had 20 students, one day left on our trip, and $200. And what would he do if he could have access to those resources? And really now, all these years later, that's how all service projects begin. You just take uh, an assessment of what time resources, what human resources, and what things you got in your hand. What do you have to offer? And you find that population of people that God's calling you to reach out to, and you figure out a way to bridge those in the name of Jesus. So we were like, we got 20 kids, 200 bucks in a day. What would you do if you could do something with those? And the man said to us, well, the front window up here is broken, and the kids haven't had meat in over a year. You could come back tomorrow and fix the window and bring some meat. And that sounded to me infinitely better than painting the wall. Um, so I was like, amen, we're, we're here. And the next, so we went back that night to Jeff was like, great idea, let's go. And the next day, we drove to um, this orphanage with our high school students, one of which was Emily Fritz at the time, who painted her face like a crown at age 15. And we, we, pulled, inside, we pulled inside of the orphanage. And Ty went off with some people to fix the window, and I set up station behind the griddle. And details aren't, like, really my strength. Like, all that was happening was I was cooking the hamburgers, and these little orphan kids would come up to the griddle with their little plates and their little dirty faces, and I'd hand them a hamburger, and they'd be happy, and they'd go away, and there'd be another one. I was just handing it to them, and I was, like, in my sweet spot. But I wasn't, like, counting the burgers or anything. And after a few minutes, Todd comes over to me, and he said, I've been watching your line, honey, and I, I this little really cute four-year-old girl we were all watching, she'd been in line, like, five times. And he said, I don't really know any preschoolers that can eat five hamburgers, so why don't you follow her? and see where the burgers are going. So I put down my spatula, and I grabbed her little hand. And I could tell as we were walking, she was looking up at me. And I could tell she was leading me somewhere, but I wasn't really sure where we, she was leading me. And we were just walking along, and she had a burger in one hand and my hand in her other. And she eventually followed me to the doorframe of her dormitory. And we got to the doorframe. She dropped my hand, and she scurried off with her other friend. And I... The best way I can describe it is that I felt like I had been sucker punched because I could see these little tiny preschoolers who were helping each other lift up their mattresses and they were sticking their hamburgers underneath them, saving them for another day. And all I could think of was all the people I knew in Cincinnati who would buy a hamburger for an orphan if they only knew there were orphans out there who needed hamburgers. And I called Todd over and we stood in that doorway and we had that conversation that we now call our defining moment. Although we didn't know it was our defining moment at the time because defining moments don't paint themselves in neon lights and they don't write themselves in the clouds. We didn't know that our whole life was about to change. But as I trace all the events of my life now backwards, they stop at that doorframe. 
but the next day we flew back to Cincinnati with our students and my life looked the same. I went to work, I called my friends up, I went to the grocery store. Our life began to unfold in all the normal, natural ways. But I just couldn't quite get comfortable again in that, in that setting. And I, I tried very hard. I, I desperately wanted to be comfortable again in this setting. Todd and I had cute little matching SUVs in the most adorable condo you've ever seen. And we were going to live that life. Gosh darn it. I wanted to live that life. Totally. But every time I would close my eyes or go for a run or drive in my car or listen to music or anytime I was anywhere, I kept thinking about that girl in her handlebars. And I have since described it as I got a burr in my saddle. No matter how hard I sat down, I kept feeling the burr. Well, I've been talking about the burr in my saddle for a long time now, but last year God decided to, like, drive that lesson home for me. And my family went horseback riding up in the mountains, and Todd and I have lots of little children. And we went to the stables, and I was getting the giggles because we went to the stable, and the stable hand was giving us this, like, 30-minute tutorial on how to drive or <laughs> drive, um, steer the horse. <laughs> and, um, like, the trail horses... They, they go to trails to retire. Like, that's the oldest, most decrepit horses ever. They're not going anywhere. They're, they're like, all talk, taking the time to teach us, and my kids are sitting there very patiently. But, like, the horse is going to fall the rear into the horse in front of it. That's just what they do, you know. But we sat patiently through it, and I was, meanwhile, filling out all the forms. And I wrote on my form this little thing about I had had some riding experience. And I think that um, now, I think... <laughs> That stable hands, like the one that gave the tutorial, who saw me not paying attention and who are in places like that where tourists come ride horses, decide to teach lessons to people like me who ride on my form, I have had some riding experience. And so all my kids got the retired old horses, except for me, who got this horse named Freckle Juice. And um, Freckle Juice, we all mount on our horses. In fact, the other ones were so slow that my son Joshua sometimes was spinning himself around in the saddle, and the horse did not even care. It was just following its trail. But my horse, Freckle Juice, the only way I can describe it is that she looked like she was dancing. She was just like moving around all the time. <laughs> I mean, it was so funny. For like four minutes, it was funny. And, um, and eventually, I could see ahead. I was the last one in line. I could see that the kids were starting to cut up in this like trail into the mountains. And I'm thinking, Freckle Juice and I are not going to make this. In fact, I had said to someone at this point, I can't believe I've paid someone to be entertained this way. Like my stomach is in knots. And I'm thinking, we are not making it up that trail. Freckle Juice and I aren't. So I finally um, humbled myself and yelled out to the trail guide, hey, what do you think is going on over here with Freckle Juice? And the trail guide swings her head around and watches me for a few minutes. And then she goes, oh, you know what? It looks like to me she's got a little burr or something under her saddle. But if you ignore her after a while, it'll get kind of calloused and numb, and she'll settle down. And um, that's exactly what happened. By the time Freckle Juice and I hit that, that part of the trail I was worried about, she had settled down because whatever had been bothering her had gotten calloused and numb. And she, for the rest of the trail ride, didn't have any better view than the rear end of the horse in front of her. And I spent the rest of that trail ride thinking about the burrs in our saddles. Because I think all burrs start with a cry. And we've all been wired differently. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite passages about how uniquely and intricately and personally and intimately we have been created. And I think God has wired us each to hear different cries. Some of us hear the cry of the unborn. Some of us hear the cry of homeless. Some of us hear the cry of Africa. Some of us hear the cry of the youth. I was designed to hear the cry of the orphan. And when I came back from that initial experience, I had a choice. I could either respond to that burr in my saddle or I could ignore it. And had I ignored it, I would have felt 
calloused eventually and numb. And if any of you this morning have ever or are feeling that sensation of callousness and numbness, the instant antidote to that is to listen again to the cry that God has put into your heart. But anyway, that's that's a year later we moved to Mexico, and that's that's the story of how um, our life and the Greer life and the back-to-back life and the Grace Chapel life all became one happy family. But this morning we're going to really study a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. And I picked this passage because it's a very Christmassy passage, and this is a beautifully decorated Christmas church, and I thought that this would be a fun passage for us to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Isaiah chapter 9. If not, follow up here on the screen with us. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And as I picked this passage and began to study it, I couldn't get past verse 2. And so this morning, I totally anticipate talking about Mighty Counselor, Wonderful God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But the truth of the matter is, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I began to think about the difference between what it would look like to live in the shadowlands and what it must have felt like when the light finally dawned and they could get rid of their rod of oppressors and the burden and the yoke that it carried them and taking off their warrior's boots and letting go of their battlements. When they could, when the light dawned and everyone in those days was living in the shadowlands and they were longing with anticipation and wonder on their tiptoes for the day that the light would finally dawn and the Messiah would finally come and the government would be his And the peace would have no end. They were longing for that as they were laboring so deeply in the land of the shadows. And when the light dawned and they got to cross over into the land of the light, what that must have felt like for them. And then there comes us, who ever since we've been born, we've only had opportunities to live in the light. And I've been just fascinated this week with how much I let go of my privilege and the birthright I've been given to be in the land of the light and I let go of that so easily and return to the land of the shadows and I, I've been just trying to brainstorm what does it look what's a shadow land like shadow land living look like in 2009 what what does that look like and why would I ever be satisfied with the counterfeit treasure and the counterfeit satisfaction that it offers me. And yet, many times this week, I chose to walk out of the light and step my foot into the shadowlands. 
There's a war inside of us with the, the sinful root of selfishness is at war with the spirit that God has given us as the light has dawned into our lives at different times and through different circumstances. And he's called us to be over here all the time. And yet some days I'm over here mostly and I got my big toe over here in the shadow of God. And some days I'm over here in the shadow land and I just dip my foot over here in the land of the light when somebody's looking. But the truth of the matter is in my inner life, I'm over here in the shadow land. And it reminded me of a passage in Galatians that we're going to read. This is the only other passage we're going to read. And it's in the translation of the message, which is a translation I like to read sometimes when I want to read something that's familiar to me and see it in a new way. So bear with me for a minute as we read this passage in Galatians, which describes to me perfectly what the Shadowlands look like. And I want to see if you recognize yourself in it at all. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence, love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other, and where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit, then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit. Just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of Shadowland Living. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Here's my description of the Shadowlands. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied wants. A brutal temper. An impotence to love or be loved, divided homes, divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. These are ugly parodies of community. That's Shadowland Living. I could go on. I love Paul. But this isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom in this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way, when we walk over here to the land of the light? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit begins to appear in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energy wisely. If you didn't recognize that, that's the fruits of the Spirit. Let's go back to 22. What happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, that's love. Exuberance about life, that's joy. Serenity, that's peace. And it goes on. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. The things that we have access to the Spirit of God that flows through us when we choose to spend our time in the land of light. Okay, where were we? Okay, 
Verse 23, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified. Once the light has dawned on the people and we walk over into the land of the light, then our desire and the satisfaction we would find in those things is forever crucified. Since this is the kind of life we've chosen to walk over here to the land of light, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure we do not just hold it as an idea in our head or a sentiment in our hearts, but we work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another one was worse because we have far more interesting things to do with our lives. I've been thinking just so much about that this week, and truthfully, in 30 minutes, I can't wrap all my thoughts up in a, in a, in a bow to offer to you. I really just ultimately want to stir your pot this morning so that you go home and ask yourself the question, how much of my time am I living in the shadowlands even though the light has already dawned in my life and how often do I enjoy the fruits of the spirit, the gifts that God gives me, the way fruit comes into an orchard, love and joy and peace and patience. How often do I enjoy that kind of living? Someone after first service told me that when he, he's been spending most of his time in the shadowlands, but you only cast a shadow when you've held yourself up against the light. The light is coming on us. And as I've been thinking about myself, what makes me go into the shadowlands? If I feel, if I've experienced all these great things over here in the light, what would ever want me to put my big toe back in the miry pit that, that I'm calling the shadowlands? And I think that the root of it is a sense of disbelief. A sense that maybe God's way isn't the best way. That maybe somewhere along the line he's dropped a ball somewhere. Or that the will that it looks like he's planned out for me just isn't exactly what I had planned out for my own life. And I take back that control of my life, which leads me into those ugly parodies of community. And God has taught me over and over and over and over again that his ways are higher than my ways. And this morning I'm going to share with you a story about a way in which he's brought that home to me so clear this last year. And I do lots of speaking, and I, I think that crowd participation is kind of cheesy. But I'm going to ask you to do something with me. There's a phrase I'm going to say over and over again, and I'm going to teach it to you right now. And when I start it, I want you to finish it as I tell this story. So just bear with me if you think it's cheesy, but here we go. The phrase is, the story isn't over yet. Okay, let's practice. The story. When Todd and I moved to Mexico that summer, 1997, just right after that bad bank experience I was just sharing with you, we just spent all of our time at one of the children's homes in the neighborhood. And, I mean, what did I know about orphans or Mexico or foreign land or missions work? I'm like a little girl grew up in Landon. All I can tell you from that first season that I had was that of all the hundred kids we were spending time with in that time frame, there were two little girls who looked to me like they were in technicolor. And I loved them all, but these little two girls, I just, I couldn't get enough of. And one of them, she was just, um, she was like 10 months, and I wore her on my hip like you would an accessory to your outfit. I would get there every day, and I'd pick her up, and she was kind of lethargic, and I now realize was probably sick, but I didn't know anything about babies either, so I didn't know that. I just hung out with her on my hip all the time, and she went with me most places that I went. And she had a two-and-a-half-year-old sister who I thought was just feisty. And I, I thought that was adorable at the time. I thought, like, she's like a little survivor. Here she is with all these orphans, and she's, like, 
she's just like tough stuff. And I had taught kindergarten over at um, Sycamore. And so the first thing I did was start a little kindergarten class at this children's home. And they were all like five-year-olds, but I took my little two-and-a-half-year-old um, Technicolor baby with me into the class. And she was half the age of everybody else, but she was always in charge. And I just I thought that was cool. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. We didn't know anything about anything about anything. Have I established that yet? But we decided that we wanted to adopt these little girls. If I had known what I was getting into, I might have turned around the other way, but I didn't know what I was getting into, so I went ahead and began the process of trying to adopt these two little sisters. And the first step was to contact through the director of the children's home, the next of kin, and ask them if they would give us this permission. So um, it came back word that they didn't want the girls anymore, they wouldn't be able to take care of them ever, and yes, they did grant us that permission. So we began kind of the paperwork process and the money-gathering process and the interview process, and we were about four months into that. And on Christmas Eve, we got a phone call from the next of kin who said, could I come over and give them a gift? This will be what I, what we all anticipated would be the last time they would ever see him, them. And we just want to have some closure and say goodbye and give them a gift. And how do you say no to that? You don't say no to that. You say, okay, of course. And so we arranged for them to come, and I thought 15 minutes sounded wildly generous of us to give them with these girls. So Todd and I went into the office and this person came and picked up the girls and went out kind of towards the entrance of the children's home, and they had their little 15 minutes. And at like minute 14 and a half, I'm getting nervous as a cat, and I decided I'm just going to go check and see how they're doing. So I walk out to the front and find where they were sitting under a tree, and they were gone. He had jumped onto a bus with them in our city and taken off somewhere in the city. And I fell to the ground in tears. And I wish I had known then what I know now. And that's that the story. But I didn't know that yet. So he and I jump into a truck and we just start driving around. The city's like six million people. There's no way we were going to find them. But it just felt good to do something. We drove around looking for them and we never found them. Four months later, my, um, I gave birth to my birth daughter and we were super ecstatic about having her be a part of our family. And a few months after that, we got a phone call that there was a little boy available for adoption that had a 24-hour window left in his paperwork, and they were looking for someone who was paperwork ready to do it. And, oh my gosh, we went and adopted my son, Evan, who's the joy of my life. I cannot imagine our family without him. And in the months following Evan's adoption, he, he's got a pretty great story himself, but in the months following his adoption, I can remember thinking, like, this turned out pretty good for me, and this turned out pretty good for Evan. But what's going on with those little girls? And a little seed of disbelief planted itself in my brain and tempted me to walk back into the shadow land. Because I wasn't totally sure that God could be all good and all in control and all, all those things and not have maybe dropped this little ball. Eighteen months later, I was, um, it was another summertime, and I was in Mexico, and Emily Fritz was there with me for the summer, and we got a phone call in the middle of the afternoon that there was a new orphanage opening up in the north part of town, and did we want to come check it out? And I should have probably said, yep, my husband will be down with work around six. He was there with a team at another home, but I'm kind of impulsive, and so I said, we'll be right over. So Emily and I jumped into the car with my two little babies. Uh, my birth daughter and my uh, adopted son are the same age, so we piled them all in the car, and we drove across town. And this lady met me at the gate who's about 60 years old. She just started this orphanage, and she was walking us around, telling me about her ministry, and I was listening, and it was lovely. 
But in the summertime, Mexico is really hot. And so about halfway through the tour, I asked her if we could go in the kitchen and get a little drink. And she said, absolutely. So we walked into the kitchen, and I can remember everything about it. I was, there was like a countertop, and I was walking up to the countertop, and I was reaching over to get a cup. And as I reached over, I could see on the floor playing with some Tupperware was my little accessory. And as soon as I saw her, I like hopped the, the, the counter like the Dukes of Hazard, you know, jumped over on the other side, and I scooped her up, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And I was like, I just started crying and screaming, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is our little girl. Did you, did you understand that? We were supposed to have them. Obviously, somebody couldn't take care of them because they brought them here. And did you know, we just didn't call them again because I think probably the government would understand that they're our daughters, and I could probably renew the paperwork. And, of course, her sister, and as I'm, like, making a scene and screaming and crying and everything, the little two-and-a-half-year-old, who was now almost five, could hear me from the other side of the room. And she came running around the corner, recognizing my voice, and ran into my arms. And I'm telling you, I thought I for sure I heard the Hallelujah Chorus break out from somewhere. I was like, yes. And I scooped them back up, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I love you girls so much. And God brought you back into our life. And I knew I had a God that saved the day. And I was just like, blah, blah, blah. And I look over at this lady, and um, she looks at me, and she's like, what are you doing? And, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you need to call the next kid right now. And I'm not leaving now again. Now that I know they are, I'm never leaving again. I, will you call my husband? You don't even know my husband. Here's his phone number. Will you call him? Let him know they come over here. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even letting go of him to go with the phone. And she said, oh, I'm not calling anybody. I don't even know you. And you can kindly untangle yourself from these little girls. And I was just, like, stunned. And I kind of quietly put them down. And I'm like, you might not know me yet, but just trust me, I'm not leaving here until you get to know me, and you're going to love me once that happens, and I'll be here every day from now on. And I was. I went there. I went there all the time. I was the tooth fairy, and I made them cookies, and we went to their school functions, and we took pictures of them, and we went and did tutoring, and we played with them. I was there all the time in that next season because I wanted to gain the trust of this children's director so that she would allow us to begin the process again to adopt these children. And about six months after that first reunion with them, I got a phone call from her, and she said to me, there's been an accident, and the only person who would be able to sign the adoption papers for you has died this evening. And with his death, I'm sure is the death of this dream for you. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And I wish I would have known then what I know now. And that is that the story isn't over yet. That I didn't know it yet. And that little seed of doubt just got a little bigger in my brain. And for the next several years, those little girls grew up in an orphanage in much the way that I had hoped they would never experience. And Todd and I became Uncle Todd and Aunt Beth, and I slipped them double Oreos every chance I could get, and I took hundreds of pictures of them in that stage of their life, but they grew up for all intents and purposes with that home. Meanwhile, the director of this home had become a dear friend of mine and like a mentor. And then three years ago, I got a phone call in the evening, and she said to me, you know we've been battling with the oldest one. The two-and-a-half-year-old adorable feisty attitude had grown into teenage rebellion. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried to get her to stay in line, and she's just refusing. And as the oldest of all the girls in the home, I'm afraid she's going to lead them astray. And so she's broken. She's the, the straw that broke the camel's back happened this afternoon. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to go and deposit her into a government orphanage. And Martha knew, as I did, that I wouldn't have access into that children's home. And she said, would you like to come this evening and say goodbye to her? And I knew that if she went into that children's home, I would be able to predict with stunning accuracy the rest of her life. 90% of orphans go into the black market or prostitution, and she was well on her way 
was like, what about her little sister? She's like, oh, no, she's been fine. She can stay here. And I realized that those two little girls who know no family but each other in their whole life would be separated then forever. So Todd and I had a conversation that lasted well into the night. And in the morning, I went and checked them out of that orphanage underneath the umbrella of back-to-back ministries, and we became the foster parents for these two little girls. And as I brought them home that day, the littlest one, like, skipped into the house. She'd never seen, like, most machinery, so she liked the microwave and the toaster and the vacuum cleaner and the alarm clock. She was happy as a lark and went off to her room. But the 13-year-old kind of walked in, like, too non-breast. And I took her up into our garden, and I looked at her, and I grabbed her little face, and I said, you know what? I wish I could tell you that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, I will always be your mama, and this will always be your home. But that's just not true. We got like nine other kids in this house and a whole campus full of people watching you, and I'm telling you, I'm putting some boundaries around you right now. And if you cross these boundaries, I will be forced to take you to myself and drop you off at a government orphanage, and I cannot imagine the pain that would be associated with that. And she had begun to cry. And I said, but you know what? God is our story weaver. And he wrote this chapter all these years ago. You were only in that other orphanage like six little tiny months, and you know why? Because God wanted two 25-year-old naive kids to fall in love with you so that when this chapter came, we'd be prepared to act. Do you know how many times I get called that kids are getting kicked out of orphanages? All the time. And how many of them do I make my family members? Like none of them. But God knew this chapter would happen, so he wrote this one in preparation for this one, and he's writing this chapter for you today because he's looking at what's to come, and the story is not over yet of your life. And I wish I could say that she and I, like, embraced in that moment and sung Kumbaya, and it was awesome, but (laughs) it didn't exactly unfold that way. She is the very definition of taking two steps forward and one step back, and in the three years since she's been in our home have been tumultuous. But about 18 months ago, she prayed to receive Jesus into her life. And she made the decision to walk out of the Shadowlands into the life. And God's been giving her gifts much in the same way they come out of an orchard. Love and joy and peace and patience. And she's been practicing what that life looks like. And the the epilogue to the story is this summer I was um, in Mexico at a church service. and And a church, North Cincinnati Community Church over here in Mason, was there visiting with us. And an adult man came up to me and introduced himself as Mark Shaw. And I I recognized him. He'd been to Mexico before, and I recognized his face and everything. And he said to me, "Um, hi, I'm Mark Shaw. Uh, I I just want a moment of your time. I have this story I want to tell you. And I was like, okay. And he said, my mother passed away this year. And I kind of remember having heard of his mom. His mom was named Barbara Shaw. And I, like, knew that, like, she was, like, a prayer warrior and that people talked about her with reverence, kind of. And I'd kind of heard that she'd been sick, and I said, I'm sorry that that happened. And he said, well, you know what? I just got this question for you. About three years ago at a back-to-back banquet, someone bought some paintings, and one of them was gifted to my mother. And then we had this high school girl who took a stack of photographs, and she painted some pictures and then sold them at our banquet to raise money for back-to-back, and people bought them and did whatever they wanted to. And he said, someone gifted this picture for my mother, and she hung it, on her ca- above her couch, and she prayed intercessorily for the two children that were in that picture all the time. And she was bedridden most of those three years with her illness, and so she spent a lot of time praying for them. And when she realized that she was dying, she asked me if I would pick up that baton because she told me, I'm not sure what it looks like on the other side, but I feel like the work isn't done yet. 
would you pray for these two children when I, when I leave? And he's like, what do you say to your dying mother? You say, like, yes, or, you know, of course you're going to do that. And he said, but I don't pray in the same ways that she prays, and I don't know all the things that she knows. And so I've just been finding myself saying the same thing over and over again, and it kind of feel, starting to feel stale. And I was wondering if I could show you the picture of the kids, if you'd recognize them and be able to tell me any details about their lives. And I was like, okay, well, I hope so. And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, Jesus, these pictures are like four years old, and we have a very transient population we serve, and some of them are street kids that we don't see for long periods of time, and I certainly don't know everything about all of them. And, but it was so, he was so sincere, and the whole story about his dying mother, and like I was just like, Jesus, please help this be something I can help with. So I called my children around me because they know a lot of the kids, and they're from a lot of places, and I said, okay, guys, we're going to look at this picture this man's going to show us, and we're going to see if we can recognize pictures of faces of these kids and we're going to see if we know anything to tell him and they were all like okay mom when can we leave church you know they come around to me this guy picks up this picture and hands it to me and as soon as he hands it to me my two girls who are now 13 and 15 started crying because we all recognized it instantly as a picture that we had taken several years before and I looked at him and I said I can tell you a few things about the kids in the picture and as we walked backwards in her story, we realized that at just the same time she was receiving that painting was about the same time those little girls came into our lives. And as we walked it through and we realized that 18 months ago, when some of her battling her body was the fiercest and her prayers were the strongest, was right at the time the battle was so fierce inside of our house. And I've made up this statistic, so if you quote me, I just made this up myself. But I've been saying lately that I think that we need to battle in the circumstances of our life 90% in the heavenlies and only act out the 10% on earth. But the truth is we usually do the opposite of that. We battle it out in the flesh 90% and we throw up this 10% prayer like, please bless what we're up to. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? Your mother co-labored with me in the salvation of the soul of this little orphan girl and now is a part of the great cloud of witnesses she sees that the story is not over yet. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what circumstance or relationship or task or situation that's causing seeds of disbelief to be planted in your mind, that God maybe is not all in control, that maybe somewhere along the line he's dropped the ball. And as that seed is taking root in our in your heart and your mind, it's pulling you into the shadow land, which is an ugly parody of the community that God promises us. But I'm here to say this morning that the light has dawned, and he's inviting us to walk away from that and to step into the light where he longs to give gifts to us in the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, exuberance for life, serenity, affection for others. And as I pray this morning, I'd just like you to pray along with me for the story in your life that's not over yet. And the faith that this Christmas you're willing to place in his hand, that he is our story weaver. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you that you so intimately and uniquely and intricately created each of us with our own giftings and our own burrs in our saddle and our own stories and our own relationships and Lord right now we just offer those all back up to you trusting you 
trusting you that the story's not over yet, trusting you that you're looking at our whole life at one time and that each chapter is in preparation for something yet to come and that each of those chapters in our lives and the lives of those we love are held in your hands. Lord Jesus, we long to walk away from this shadowland living that is so tempting to fall into. We, we reject the counterfeit treasure that satisfies us, the brutal anger, the impotence to be loved, the addiction. We let go of those things and promise you as we walk into the light that our hands will be open and the light can wash over us. Jesus, we trust you in this Christmas season for all that we don't yet see and all that we don't yet know. We praise you for your counsel and in the name of your Holy Son, amen. Amen. Merry Christmas.